From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Dr. Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. This is a special episode of the podcast, which we are recording during the COVID-19 pandemic. That means we're not in the studio, but are talking via phone and computer. Our sound quality will be different as a result. But now more than ever, I thought it was important to share with you some of the amazing work being done by members of the BGSU community. Even, or especially when conditions are challenging, we need to recognize and celebrate great ideas. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lori Liggett, a senior lecturer at BGSU in the School of Media and Communication, whose teaching and research focus on gender and visual culture. She's a spring 2020 ICS faculty fellow who is doing public scholarship focused on images of womanhood in popular media during the era of women's suffrage. I'm really pleased to get to talk with you today, Lori. Thank you for being flexible and joining me virtually. Yes, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Just start off, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in studying the era of women's right. suffrage? And what have been some of the more interesting and surprising directions that this research has led you? Right. Well, basically, I got involved in studying the suffrage movement about 25 years ago. And it wasn't my original intent. I was studying women's service magazines of the late 19th century. So women's service magazines are things like Godey's Ladies Book, which was one of the first one. Then you segue into things like Good Housekeeping. And so I was interested in motherhood, domesticity, from a sociopolitical point of view. And as I was doing decades of looking at literally every issue of good housekeeping, I started seeing this pivot from talking about new household technologies and cooking procedures and new techniques for mothers and into more political stuff. And immediately I was hooked. And of course, I knew a little bit about the suffrage movement, but I hadn't seen it within that context. And it shocked me. So because there were actual sort of literary essays that would appear in the service magazines, I also started seeing it in advertising. Just references were popping up everywhere. And when I really got into it, was probably around the, I would say, 1908-1910 issues, when you started seeing, and remember this is good housekeeping, references to militarism, to women becoming militant, to radicalism. Now, this is good housekeeping. I guarantee you if you were to go to the newsstand today and pick up a good housekeeping, you would not see anything on radicalism and militancy. I was shocked. This was largely due to what was going on in Great Britain at the time. And the leader in Great Britain, one of the leaders 
is the sort of famous or infamous Zemmeline Pankhurst. And the British movement had become militant at that point. We started to see sort of the beginnings of that in the American suffragist movement. I just never imagined I would see it in good housekeeping. So that's the origins of it. And what were some of the elements of your research that surprised you most? So you said the the language of militancy, but what about some of the visual iconography? Well, I expanded from there over the last 25 years. I guess I would consider myself a media scholar, but I really focus on visual culture and visual communication. I've always been attracted to the images of things. And when I study media, I'm interested in mediated images. And so I was already studying advertising. This is a long way to get to the bicycling stuff that I'm doing now, but I am a fanatic about the Art Nouveau movement, which was late 1880s, at full steam in the 1890s, less popular, but still very prevalent up until the start of World War I. I started seeing images of women in advertising that was very much Art Nouveau style, but would have a political element. And in a lot of those images, I noticed that they were using the bicycle. And so you would see women on bicycles advertising everything from soap to cigars to carpeting to flour. So things that had nothing to do with bicycling, but you would see a woman and a bicycle. And I was just fascinated by that. And I started collecting images of women on bikes. So basically what I was doing, I was downloading JPEGs <laughs> and just just keeping this sort of archive, trying to figure out what to do with it. At some point, I would say probably in the 1970s, definitely by the 80s and certainly the 90s and throughout, you started to see more scholarship on the suffrage movement that wasn't what we would call traditional history. And, you know, I was a grad student in the 90s. And so looking at material culture and the socio-political angle of political culture, it sort of brought everything together for me. So we've got these visual images, we've got advertising, we've got women's politics, we've got, for some reason, the bicycle, which I didn't understand at that point, and you know, really a couple of decades later, it leads me to the project that I'm working on now. So tell us a little bit about some of that research. And, you know, what have you discovered was the role or the purpose of all of that focus on the bicycle? What is the connection to women's voting mm -hmm. and changing women's rights? So I had to backtrack and learn a lot about bicycle history. And I'm certainly not an expert, but I know a lot more about bicycle history than I did, you know, let's say uh, nine months ago, let's put it that way. And so the bicycle itself is just a, a fascinating global phenomenon. And today we would look at a bicycle and, you know, almost all of us, regardless of, of gender, of where you live in the world, the bicycle has been part of your life at some point. And there's a reason for that, which is that 
The bicycle represents the first device that permitted human beings to self-mobilize. In the 1600s, there are images of people on these things that kind of look like a bike. So people were imagining something along those lines. But it takes until about, I think the date is 1817, and you have a um, German guy, his name was Karl von Dreis, or Dreis probably, and he developed this thing called a running machine. Now, what was a running machine? They were also called hobby horses or dandy horses. Another name based on his name was a Dreisin. But what it was is it was something that sort of looked like a bicycle, two wheels. There was a plank that you would sit on. So you would straddle it, sit on it. And then with your feet, almost like Fred Flintstone, you would move it along. It took decades of improvements until you get to the 1860s. And you have something that the French developed, which was called the bone shaker. The bone shaker was called that because it was incredibly hard on the cyclist's body. So at the time, these devices would have been made out of wood and steel. The tires, there was no, there was no tire the way we think of it. The wheels were made out of iron or steel. And so if you rode it, you know, it was just shaking every bone in your body. So it was called the bone shaker. And there was a woman's version, which was called the tricycle. So they developed these three wheel devices, extremely heavy, extremely expensive, not to be ridden in public. But so only wealthy women who had sort of private space, so garden space, would ride a tricycle. It said the Queen Victoria had a couple of them. And they were pretty popular amongst wealthy, but you did not see women riding a tricycle out in public spaces. Well, so fast forward a little bit to how does that get associated? How does that sort of these new technologies and improvements to this get associated with ordinary middle class and working class women? Well, it's interesting you say ordinary because the bicycle the one we think of with the big wheel and the little back wheel, that was actually called the ordinary. And that was developed in the 1870s. It was called a high wheeler or an ordinary. And it was considered an improvement on the bone shaker because it was light and it was fast. It was extremely difficult to maneuver. Riding schools were set up. But you actually had women, particularly in the beginning, French women, who started almost performing on these high wheelers. So they would come to the United States and perform as almost circus acts. And, you know, they were working women. They were women who were not from the upper classes. You know, they tended to wear clothing that was considered back then a little scanty. Um, and they were seen really as spectacle, as an oddity. In the late 1880s, you have something developed that's called the safety. The safety is really the progenitor of the bicycle today. And almost immediately, due to a guy, an American named Albert Pope, he imported the safety. He bought all the patents for it. And he started marketing like crazy. 
and Americans started buying the safety. Just a couple of years of the safety coming to the United States, bike manufacturers started doing something they called the drop frame so that women could get onto the bike. Women took to it like crazy. And in the 1890s, you have something that was called the bicycle craze. And it truly was this phenomenon. I don't want to bore you with details, but just to give you an example, in 1885, you had six bicycle manufacturers in the United States, just six, and they were producing about 11,000 bikes a year. In 1895, there were 125 manufacturers. They were producing a half a million bikes a year. A year later, it was a million bikes. So what happened is, you know, oftentimes the bike is sort of seen as this, um, great democratic equalizers of the classes and gender. We had all these social reform movements. By the 1890s, the women's suffrage movement had been pretty much in full swing for almost 50 years, with sort of peaks and valleys, of course. But things were different. There were new technologies, you know, technologies in communication, transportation, mass media, newspapers were the most popular form of communication and the price of a newspaper had dropped. So the relationship there is that the ability to find out about these devices was available to almost everyone, whether you were in an urban area or a rural area. And bikes became prevalent in the streets. Now, not everyone liked them. Uh, a lot of cities imposed bans, and there were bans against women riding bikes. One of the things that ties to the suffrage movement is that during the 1890s, so you have the bicycle craze, but you also have probably the, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I would say the height, but the beginning of the strength of the suffrage press. And so as there were mainstream and regional, national newspapers all across country, suffrage leaders started publishing their own works. And there were many, I think in the 1890s, there were something like 30 different suffrage publications. And these acted, so of course they were political, but they were also quite social. And they serve the purpose of creating community amongst women who are geographically separated and also maybe not of the same political mindset. A lot of women probably had not heard about the details of a lot of political organizing that was going on, or perhaps it had always been treated as sort of this anomaly, this sort of strange thing on the side that was going on. But you know, the way we do social media today, it's very difficult to think about that someone would take the time to write a letter to the editor, then wait for a month and get the response. But it was really the way that women communicated. So they would write in a question to the editor, and then people would respond with helpful tips. And it was really sort of an exchange of ideas. And so you had things that Within the suffrage press, they certainly were talking about the issue of suffrage and other social reform issues. But bicycling or cycling in the 1890s 
became one of the major topics of conversation. That's what women wanted to know about. They wanted to know things like, how do you ride a bike? How do I get a bike? How much do they cost? What do you want to do when people harass you and jeer at you and throw things at you and call you names, which were all things that happened with great frequency? And so the suffrage press played this incredible role in bringing women together in a political way, in a sort of community sort of way, and also the specific thing, which was the bicycle. 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the passing of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things we might take for granted now that back then really posed major obstacles to the women fighting for suffrage? If we look at, you know, the marker for the women's suffrage movement is 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention, out of which Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott and, you know, a hundred other people created something called the Declaration of Sentiments. The purpose of that conference or convention initially was not for women to gain the right to vote or even, you know, to advocate for the right to vote. It ended up, they discussed that, but it was really about women's rights in general. Things we take for granted. Women during that time period could not serve on a jury. They had no legal rights. They could not own property. They did not have the right to their own children. They did not have the right to divorce. And all of that is based on the United States adopting a legal system, which was based on the English common law system. Uh, it's called coverture. And basically what that says is when a man and a woman marry, they become one person. And that one person is the male. So the woman's identity was figuratively, but legally and economically merged into with the male. She really was the property, if she was single, of her father, if she was married, her husband. And it was really that that the women's rights movement began to address. And out of that, then, a very soon realization was, if you don't have the right to vote, you don't have any means to influence lawmakers. You don't have access. Without access, you have nothing. And I think today, you know, we are still fighting for so many rights to access, but we don't realize that the most fundamental rights were not ours, except for the people who are part of the suffrage movement for 72 years. And of course, today, again, you know, it's uh, uh, people all over the world and uh, people who identify all different ways who are still fighting for access, access to self-governance, to a voice in governance, to the financial systems, economic systems. So there are a lot of parallels to today. It just seems very diffused today. You know, it's much more diffused and, but yeah, we owe them a lot. 
Many of us have learned some of those major figures from the suffrage movement, but there are many more that are less well-known. Do you have any particular figures or key moments in history that you'd like to draw our attention to that maybe don't get covered in the one chapter or the one paragraph in a given textbook? Right. You know, there is a lot of work going on today to look at individual stories that have not been told about the suffrage movement and to look at particular demographics within the suffrage movement that, um, you know, beforehand, uh, before this have not been discussed. Of course, African-American women, Native American women, women of color in general, Asian Americans, immigrants, people who were not fully Americans, were part of the movement from its very inception. We know some of those famous names. We know Harriet Tubman. In fact, there was a movie that was just out about Harriet Tubman. A lot of the Black women who were involved in the suffrage movement in the early years came out of the abolitionist movement, as did almost all of the early white women came out out of the abolitionist movement. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, who's my ancestor, by the way, Susan B. Anthony, you know, those are the names that we know. They all started as abolitionists. They were anti-slavery reformers. So Jenner Truth, you know, who gave the famous speech, uh, Ain't I a Woman, in Akron, Ohio. And she was really talking about rights in general. And I don't want to I don't want to pare down what she said too much, but I encourage anyone to watch some of the reenactments that have been done. I think um, Alfre Woodard does one. There are quite a few famous Black female actors who have reenacted, not necessarily in dress, but the voice, the speech of Sojourner Truth. It is powerful. You also have so many women who are involved that are uh, much lesser known, but not during the time period. Ida B. Wells, you know, she was a famous person, right? Anti-lynching activist and journalist. Mary Church Terrell, who I believe got her degree at Oberlin College and was um, an educator and very well known in the movement. And then there are all the women that you would see them as sort of the set actors in a movie, you know, in a documentary where you don't know their names, you don't know who they are. But the movement took just thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I mean, the movement was 72 years long. It was multi-generational. The two of us, you know, we would have been in the middle of those generations. We would have had mothers and grandmothers and daughters, and nieces. It was multi-generational. The earliest women in the movement never lived to see the the 19th Amendment. That always makes me very sad. But Lucretia Mott died, I think, in 1893. I think that's the date. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I want to say about 1904 or something. Um, Susan B. Anthony, a couple years after that. Sojourner Truth. Harriet Tubman, you know, all these people, they didn't actually, and this was their life work. This was their job. And so I think that we, you know, I teach uh, narrative structure in script writing 
for television and film. And one of the principles that I always try to explain to my students is, you know, we never want to look at a movie and say, well, it's not as good as the book. You know, the movie is a snapshot. And those snapshots are typically, they become engaging when we have a res what we call a representative character. And so what's happened is the most well-known white women of the suffrage movement have become our representative characters that have taken us through the movement. And now in the last 20 years, it's been about expanding that snapshot. Let's go down all these different avenues. And I think when you study visual culture, you study material culture, you look at visual communication, you start to see that the snapshot is a very, 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 can be a very full portrait of all of the people who are involved, including men, of course. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. Consider the following. If you are passionate about Big Ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Hello, and welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Lori Liggett about the centenary of women's suffrage. So, Lori, we've been talking a lot about the past and about sort of, you know, rediscovering this history. What relevance do you think this story has for our own times? You know, are there particular points of struggle that today really signify the challenges to women's participation in U.S. politics and governance? Well, I want to answer that probably two ways. And I'll start with something that is on everyone's mind today, which is that the women's suffrage movement at its end point in 1918 was the great flu influenza pandemic. And I'm not an expert in that by any means, but of course I've been reading about it recently with regards to the women's suffrage movement. I mean, it was sort of a light bulb one day when I realized, you know, you know, I'm doing all this work and I've got all this timeline in my head. And someone mentioned the 1918 influenza pandemic, which I knew that was the year I was aware of that. I'd never put the two together and, and thought, wow, what did this do to the suffrage movement? I mean, we have to remember that was a catastrophic global event. In the United States alone, 675,000 people died. Worldwide, 50 million. And so, you know, I look to see what other scholars and uh, journalists have written about this. And actually, you know, Google it. There's some really interesting information to be learned about the women's suffrage movement and the 1918 flu pandemic. It almost derailed the movement. And I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that we here in 2020, 100 years ago, we are very lucky that somehow these women and men were so organized and had such a machine in place that somehow they were able to overcome this catastrophic world event 
And just two years later, and less than two years later, 18 months really, the 36th state, Tennessee, ratified the 19th Amendment. But it almost derailed it. I read something uh, recently. What it said is that one of the things that happened, we know that during World War I, just like World War II, many women moved into the workforce because the men were away. What I didn't realize was that because the flu pandemic, that also contributed women going into the workforce. Now, that may seem sort of antithetical to what we think, but so many men were away during World War II that, and then you've got this pandemic. So women were working as nurses, even if they weren't nurses, they were doing nursing type work, moving into the workforce in a way that had never happened before. Uh, soldiers were coming back from the battlefield and bringing the influenza with them. The death amongst American soldiers was higher than any other population. And so there's all this sort of interconnection between this political movement that had been going on for 70 years and this global pandemic. So I think about today when everything has stopped, it seems like. Um, in reality, it hasn't. There is still activism that's happening. Right now, we're talking probably more than, you know, decades about the Equal Rights Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment grew directly out of the women's suffrage movement. The sad thing about that now is that we have now surpassed the number of years that it took for women to gain the right to vote. We have not yet attained the Equal Rights Amendment. And so I think that's sort of a great parallel for today is that, you know, we have so many more mechanisms in place. I mean, what we're doing today, sort of looking at each other awkwardly, you know, in real time and using several devices to hopefully record this. Now, we have devices, technology, means to communicate and to have a voice that the women and the men back then did not. And the activism that's happening in terms of equal pay, equal access, and I guess just generally equal rights is continuing, must continue. And however long this pandemic takes, we can't be derailed by it. Talking about the current pandemic, you were on fellowship with ICS this semester. So you were already released from teaching and service, but how has your life changed? <laughs> Granted, oh. you know, what was already <laughs> supposed to be a uh, kind of restful and research focused semester. What has happened right, for you? Right. Anticipating that you might ask that question, I, you know, run through many scenarios of how I would answer it in my head, because the first thing I want to say from a very sincere and genuine place is how much I have appreciated being given this opportunity to do this fellowship. It's, um, you know, I started really last summer. Um, I forget when it was announced that I got it. I think it was a semester before that, but really last summer, I started putting the wheels in motion. I taught a class last semester on uh, the women's suffrage movement. And, you know, just I went at this full steam. This semester, with not having to teach and not doing service, the goal was to get out into some archives. I love doing archival research. 
I wanted to see the Bicycle Museum, which is located in New Bremen, Ohio. There are quite a few archives that are within driving distance. And so I think that was the first thing was the realization. And I'll be honest, it took me probably like a lot of us, quite a few weeks to realize that probably wasn't going to happen this semester. A lot of archival materials today, you know, sort of, thank goodness, are digitized. When you really start looking at things specifically, you realize that a lot of things still are not digitized. So that's been difficult. As you know, the two primary requirements of the fellowship are the public community presentation, which for me was uh, scheduled for March 28th. And I would have been doing a very visual, public-friendly, community-friendly talk on the suffrage movement and the impact of the bicycle and vice versa. Of course, that was canceled. And then the other thing that just breaks my heart is the Ohio Humanities for the last, I don't know how many years, have sponsored a series of Chautauqua programs in Ohio. This was meant to be the last year of Ohio's Chautauqua. And this year, there were two planned, and one of them was in Rossford, Ohio, which of course is very close to us. And purely coincidentally, pure coincidence, the theme was voting in America. And so I found out about this. I thought I was dreaming. I contacted them and basically forced myself upon them and, you know, met with various people. And, um, and so we started meeting. I was on the, uh, the Chautauqua planning committee. I forget how many meetings we had. I think I had a sort of preliminary meeting to meet the director and then the committee met at least two times. And it was this great group of people, you know, there were two of us, you know, educational types or educator types on it. But, um, you know, we had the Parks and Rec guy and we had the woman who um, is the local historian and we had librarians. Librarians are good for everything, you know, librarians. And so this committee of about 10 people. And the Chautauqua was planned for, I think it was the second week, it was a five-day event planned for the second week in June. We had five, uh, I study documentaries, so we call them social actors, but I guess in the Chautauqua world, they are uh, reenactors, they are the, you know, the actors that play certain characters from history coming from different parts of the country. I was working with a, a League of Women Voters and they were going to, and I think I was going to do it too. I was sort of getting my nerve up to dress as suffragists and to have sort of a parade. And we were going to have voter education materials. And, you know, end of the story, it was canceled. So there is some hope that it could happen in the fall, but I don't know how much that's hope and how much that's reality. So you know, that's, that's the way it is. And, and so I've had to pivot in the work that I'm doing and go back to doing more um, secondary source stuff, um, sort of get my wind back a little bit. And I'm going back and looking at some of the 1890s poster art that I love. And um, looking at that from perhaps a 19th century 
taxonomy of women. So, you know, there's still so much interesting work to be done, but, you know, it's, uh, it's been disappointing, but, you know, I've got it good compared to a lot of people. So <laughs> I can't be, I can't be overly disappointed. You know, we've talked about this a bit, but about how this movement overlapped with, you know, a world war, a different pandemic, you know, as sort of last thoughts for our conversation, is there any kind of lessons we can take that you would want us to take away from the suffrage movement, managing to persevere in the face of long odds and many internal and external challenges? I guess what I would say is that what history teaches us is that the reform movements, social and political, economic, whatever, I'm using reform sort of broadly, they succeed if people don't give up. And we have to remember that there are always going to be ebbs and flows to everything. I try to tell myself this personally, you know, there are ebbs and flows to everything. But if you keep going and your commitment is there, the success will eventually come. Now, whether or not the people who begin the movement live to see it, that's another thing that seems very sad. But what becomes most important is the work itself. And, you know, I have experience in labor organizing and that sort of thing. And what I will say is, and this is sort of contrary to what we're taught from a sort of self-improvement, you know, uh, you know, that every individual makes a difference. I think when we look at history, it is always the collective. It is always the collective. We see individuals who stand up and they become our representative figures in that part of the history. But if you explore it further, it's usually a collective that may come after that individual who takes up the cause and keeps it going. And so, you know, power in numbers, I guess is what I would say. And, you know, we will get through this pandemic when you look at the numbers from 1918, you look at things going back to the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, all those, they wiped out huge numbers in the population. And you wonder how the human race, you know, survived. We will get through this. And, you know, hopefully with not the catastrophic events or the effects of 1918. And so the work has to continue. The activism has to continue. And we've got the tools and mechanisms to, to make that happen. Thank you so much, Lori. It was really great to talk to you today. It was nice to talk to you, too. Thanks. It was good to see you, too. Lovely to see you. Yes, we can't be there in person, but this is as close as we can get. Yes, absolutely. You can find the Big Ideas podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Our producers are Chris Caveira and Marco Mendoza. Research assistance was provided by Rex Light with editing by Stevie Shorek. Special thanks go out to Marco for his extraordinary sound editing in challenging conditions. 